Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Our gracious God, we come grateful to be here, grateful for our church family, uh, grateful for this hour. We ask that you would be with us, that you would guide us. Uh, that in the midst of uh, important questions, you would give us humility, that you would grant us clarity. Uh, Father, be with us, we ask, for we are in desperate need of your mercy and your grace every day. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Okay, well, good. Uh, so, uh, Pastor Isaac uh, flew to Iowa or someplace yesterday to, uh, to do a wedding. And so, uh, we knew that I would be doing both Sunday school and worship today. So, I uh, decided to hold off finishing up uh, my little series on the Moscow movement until today. And so, my hope is to finish things up and to bring some concluding thoughts. And I do thank you for your patience uh, through the series. I do know that um, it's stirred some thought and it's stirred some emotion, and that's okay. That's to be expected. Um, I'll try to be brief, but I wanted to do just a, a quick review of the first four weeks and then uh, bring some concluding or some additional thoughts today. But uh, just to remind you, this isn't a movement that I'm unfamiliar with. Jen and I were married in a church uh, that joined uh, the CREC. Uh, right around the days we were married, right around the time I went down to seminary. Um, I subscribed to Gradenda Agenda in the 90s uh, before there were blogs. Uh, I did read Wilson's early books, uh, familiar with this movement. And, and I want to, again, reiterate, I'm not saying I disagree with everything that Pastor Wilson or anyone in that movement has said, is saying, or ever will say. That's not it at all. In fact, I agree with many of the critiques um, and some of the statements. Uh, Instead, I think that what I want to point out are there's some key, there are some key issues uh, that I think are very concerning. And the first is that idea of generational sanctification. This is what I went over uh, weeks two and three, that each generation uh, gets more godly than the previous generation, and that through this, over time, that godliness ushers in the new heavens and the new earth prior to the return of Christ. Uh, and not only do I not see that defended in Scripture, uh, I see the Bible telling us that as we await the return of Christ, that persecutions are going to increase, and what we need to be doing is preparing for that and preparing our children for that. Uh, and, to, and, and that's our calling. So that, that's one thing we, we hit uh, weeks two and three. Last time, uh, we looked at marriage and a few key concerns. And, you know, on the one hand, I applaud the defense of complementarianism. In other words, the view that, that men and women have different roles in the home and in the church. Uh, that's complementarianism. They, men and women are meant to complement each other. Uh, and that's with an E. There should be complementing each other, too, with an I. But complement means work together, uh, make up for each other's lacks. We need men who take leading seriously. We need women who want to be uh, godly and, and to want to submit in the home and in the church. We need that. That's good. The dangers I see are, are what I think is an unhealthy view of leadership uh, that fails to really see that the chief call of a leader is to take up his cross and serve. 
uh, or a view of wifely submission that can be dangerous, that can go too far, or uh, uh, specifically views that bind families' consciences, uh, saying that trusting God means... Uh, taking as many children as come and, and saying that if, if you take any measures to limit how many children you have, that you're not trusting God. And I don't think we have the right to say those things uh, to people biblically. Um, today what I want to do is look first at children and specifically two things. Uh, Wilson's view of, on education and the role parents play in whether or not their children embrace their parents' faith. Uh, and then, Lord willing, I'd like to conclude with just a few thoughts on uh, mentoring relationships within the church and, and what the Bible tells us that that should look like. So that's where I'm heading today. Uh, and, and so let's first look at how we educate our children. I'm going to be primarily referring to Pastor Wilson's book, Standing on the Promises, uh, though uh, his book, Repairing the Ruins, has much of the same uh, material. Uh, Chapter 7 in Standing on the Promises is, is about the necessity of Christian education for our children. So either homeschooling or sending our kids to Christian schools. Uh... And he starts, uh, and I have some key quotes in your handout. If you don't have a handout yet, they're, they're on the side table. Uh, but he starts by saying, if the prohibition, uh, or, yeah, if the prohibition, and, and by prohibition he means against public schools, uh, or the requirement, and the requirement there would be for Christian schooling, he says, if that is not based on scripture, no true moral obligation is involved. So, so he lays down the standard. He says, we can't say that you're morally obligated to have your kids in Christian education, either at home or at a Christian school, unless scripture says that. That's good. He's acknowledging that we can only bind a conscience where God does. Uh, our confession of faith has an entire chapter on the liberty of conscience. We take this seriously. It, uh, it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. And that's really what Jesus was talking about when he said the scribes and the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. When you add to God's word and you bind people's consciences, that's not right. And so we take that seriously. And, uh, and Pastor Wilson acknowledges nowhere does the Bible label as sin the practices called sending a child to a government school. Consequently, we must imitate scriptures on this. So he says we can't call that sin because the Bible doesn't. In other words, we... Uh, he wants to say, we can't say you're in sin if you send your kids to public schools. And I, I agree. I appreciate that. But then he goes on. He says, but at the same time, the Bible is very clear on the central parental responsibility in education. And this principle, when applied to our contemporary situation, provides us with clear direction. He's going to build an argument where that while the Bible does not say it's wrong to send your kids to public schools in those words, 
that the Bible makes it clear that there's a moral obligation on parents to make sure that their children's entire education is expressly Christian. Uh, He goes on and he offers five arguments uh, to that. The first is Christian parents are morally obligated to keep their children out of government schools because the scriptures expressly require a non-agnostic form of education. Uh, In other words, uh, agnostic is... uh, not specific on on being Christian beliefs, and defend to defend that, he quotes Deuteronomy six and Ephesians six. Uh, the key verses in Deuteronomy six are uh, verses six and seven, which say, "And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall diligently teach." To your children, teach them to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Probably familiar verses, right? This is the famous passage, Deuteronomy 6, Hero God, the Lord our God, our hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the from the day I was born. So the question, though, is what are those words that were spoken that day? And the answer is abundantly clear in Deuteronomy. You just go back a chapter to chapter 5. Pop quiz, what's Deuteronomy 5 about? The Ten Commandments. That's right, the Ten Commandments are reiterated. And, but Pastor Wilson says that this also includes agriculture, economics, history, sex education, etc., Then he goes on to quote Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, specifically verse 4, uh, which which I have down there for you. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And he says that word translated discipline, paideia in Greek, uh, refers to the whole training uh, and education of the child. But the word just means discipline. It's what God does to us when we stray. He, he brings adversity into our lives to, to guide us back onto the road. Um, Hebrews 12 uses that word three times for God's discipline in our lives. And, and, and simply put, okay, I've read the Bible a few times. I have not found one command in Scripture for parents to teach their kids Christian math, science, literature, economics, engineering, medicine, Latin, or even to read and write. Now, I, I can see objections forming right now. Are you saying we shouldn't teach our kids to read and write? No, no, no. You're free to. But there are many generations of Christians who never learn to read and write. That is really a new reality. Um, And that's okay. We're not going to look at those previous generations and say, you failed to obey a biblical command. Um, Parents, I would encourage you to have your kids learn to read and write. Driving is much easier and things like that. Uh, It's good. I'm all for education. I just want to be clear about what the Bible requires. 
There's nothing wrong with teaching our kids these things. But, but we want to keep them in their place and not make idols out of them. Uh, what the Bible demands that we teach our kids is who God is. Who we are. What our sin deserves and where we find freedom from sin. And then what God calls us to be, namely loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled followers of Christ. I stole those from Paul, by the way. Um, and, And part of that is we need to remember that knowledge can puff up. And that what is more important in our kid's life is humility and Christian character. Um, And so I want to be really careful that that that's not what Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 say. That's not what they require. Um, His second argument, and I'm just going to blaze through the last four um, with just just a few comments and then some summary comments at the end. Uh, The second argument is Christian parents are morally obligated to keep their children out of public schools because of the requirement involved in keeping the greatest commandment. In other words, he's saying that the, uh, the claim is that parents cannot teach their children to love God with all of their mind if they're in public schools. Um, The third argument is parents are morally obligated to keep their children out of public schools because God expects parents to provide for and to protect their children. So again, the argument is that sending them to public schools is a failure to protect them. Uh, The fourth argument is parents are morally obligated to keep their children out of public schools because the declared intellectual goal assigned to the church in scripture. Specifically what he means is we're called to tear down every uh, philosophy and you know, ideology that raises itself up against Christ, and we can't do that if we're getting our education from public schools. Uh, and then the fifth one is about um, money. Christian parents are morally obligated to keep their ch- children out of government schools because the continued presence of Christians subsidizes a lie. In other words, the argument is um, we end up contributing to the system that's at odds with God. Um, now, of course, you can't get around that because taxes will subsidize, your taxes will subsidize those schools regardless of whether or not your kids go there. Um, so what's my issue? Well, certainly not homeschooling or Christian schools. Um, most of you know that Jen and I uh, have chosen homeschooling for our kids uh, without regret. Uh, and many of you know that we've talked to you or, or other parents about why we think it might be a good choice for certain families. And I even agree that there are situations where public schools could make the goals of Christian parents harder. But I would not say impossible. My issue is none of that. Like, my issue is the language of moral obligation. That's my issue. Moral obligation. Repeated in every argument five times. When you tell parents they are morally obligated, what are you telling them? God said. said That if you don't, you're in sin. Whether you use that language or not, you're binding a conscience. The scriptures he quotes don't address economics, algebra, 
history, engineering, medicine. Um, Again, I might talk with parents about why they might make one choice over another. The pastors don't have the authority to bind consciences where the Bible does not. That's all. That's the danger. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. We don't get to bind consciences. Yeah, Charlie. Just a short two-part question. What about the book? Does he address at all the novelty of compulsive education? You kind of reference it about, you know, not everybody was educated in history, but the second part is with the point that you're making now, because much of the school system is not neutral anymore, Mm -hmm. it's actually really hostile to your principles. If a family has their five-year-old in a class where they're being taught the LGBTQ agenda mm-hmm. because that's just where it's at. Are you saying there's no moral obligation for them to do? Like, is, is there a moral obligation for them to protect and withdraw their child from that if the school doesn't change with being, you know, the parent? Like, th- this is a real thing going on. No, no, it's a, it's a very real thing, right? Like, and, and that's, the, look... I am happy all day long to, to talk with individual parents about what's wisest and best. Happy. And I actually do that. Uh, you know, uh, well, maybe not all day long, but I do it regularly, right? People in this room know that. Like, we, you know, we have those conversations. And, and I have no problem um, are agreeing, right, that right now is a very scary time in public education. Dangerous time. Yeah. 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 I usually get scared with dangers, right? Uh, That's what I mean. Okay. Hands down. We can have that conversation. But when I say any government school is a violation of your moral obligation, I'm in a different level. And I don't get to say that. That's, That's the simple Right, and it's it's not a in these specific instances, right? It's a a general statement. Parents are morally obligated to keep their kids out of government schools because of these reasons, which are ageless, right? Is there any qualification for public schools in the book? Does he give anything like if the public schools are X or Y? Not in like he he definitely says you know things like at this time and stuff like that but but the but the the moral obligation language is always general and absolute it's never if this is the case and even then even if it was I would say you got to be really careful you don't get to say that right um, we there's a difference between wisdom and how we apply these things and a statement that if you do this. God says, you're, you know, you're in sin. i got to be really careful. So, yeah. Um, yes, Matthew. Uh, I wonder if it would be, um, as Christian parents, um, you know, it might be, certainly would have been more helpful for him and maybe more helpful for us to talk about what our moral obligation is. Mm-hmm. What yeah. Children, what we keep away from them, you know, how we protect them from these things that Charlie's talking about. And then we can decide if does public school fit into that? I mean, I think most of us have made this choice in the past, doesn't But, you know, it's, yeah. we, no, I, the tools make it a better. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think those are the right questions to ask. You know, so just for those of you who didn't, who didn't hear, 
Uh, what does God require, right? And, and those things are clear. You know, we're, we're to teach God, our kids who God is, what he requires, what their sin is, how to escape, and then what the response of a, of a life of gratitude looks like. These are the abundant things. And then, and then wisdom says, okay, how do the choices I make help, aid, and, and whatnot? And those are great questions. And they're not going to be the same question, answers for every individual family. And, and that's really where we have to wrestle together. What I'm going to guard is an individual family's right to make one decision and that family to make another. I'm going to guard. So I will guard every family here's right to homeschool their child or Christian school their child or public school and, and, and help them you know, make the best decision. But what I won't say is those families that, that choose one out of those three, any one, are, are in sin, are unqualified for office or things like that. That's all I'm going to do. That's it. And, but those are the right questions. For me, that's the question I and the elders want to have with families is, okay, what does God require? What is that going to look like in your family? How can we help? Perfect. I really appreciate those. Thank you. Yeah. That's it. Um, I'd also, I'd like to move on onto another concern, namely some of the language he uses with our expectations as Christians regarding our children and embracing our faith. Um, Pastor Wilson says, when all the teaching of the Bible is taken into account, parents who fulfill their covenantal obligations have every reason to expect that children will be saved. Um, a few pages later, he goes on, he says, of course, this you know, does not mean an automatic transfer of saving grace to our children, being Christians. If we disobey the terms of the covenant, especially with regard to the way we train our children, then we have no right to be dismayed with the result. The biblical facts are plain. The Bible is full of promises to parents, but the promises are for those parents who are in the covenant, keep the covenant, and who remember his commandments to do them. Okay, this is where it gets tricky. Uh, because there's a lot here that I would echo. Um, I certainly think that Christian parents should expect their children to embrace their faith, not reject it. Uh, I, I think we should be surprised and grieved when our children reject the faith. Uh, not surprised uh, when they embrace it. Okay? Uh, I certainly think that God requires Christian parents to teach their children the faith, to pray with them, and to be models of godliness and humility. And I think there can be consequences for refusing to do those things. I, 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 no disagreement there. So what's my problem? My problem is the conditionality that gets repeated over and over. Um, parents who fulfill their covenantal obligations. If we disobey, uh, the promises are for those who are in the covenant, who keep the covenant, who remember the commandments to do them. And the question just simply becomes this, how obedient do parents have to be for their children to become Christians? Um, and, and this really gets at uh, the covenant theology series that Pastor Isaac's been doing. See, Wilson, Pastor Wilson disagrees with us on a few key points that are rather big. He denies both that Adam was under a covenant of works, and he denies that the Mosaic covenant given at Sinai 
was based upon works and is different than the new covenant. In fact, he spends an entire chapter, uh, chapter 4 in his book, defending that it's really no different uh, than what we're under, uh, under. This is what the covenant of grace looks like. This is what the new covenant looks like. And these are the promises upon which we stand. Um, that when the Mosaic law says, do this and receive this, he's like, yep, that's just what the new covenant looks like. And, and now the Apostle Paul, on the other hand, says, for all who rely on the works of the law, meaning the Mosaic law, he says, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. What he's saying is, if you rely on the Mosaic law, on, the, on your obedience to that covenant to receive a reward, then you're then your obedience has to be perfect. Yeah, Charlie. Is there a distinction here to be made between Paul talking about relying on it for justification, where Craig Wilson would, with what I've read, say, you're not relying on it for justification, you're seeking to obey God and the things that he calls you to obey him in. So, like, I guess we would ask, do the scriptures actually make promises to parents who sincerely obey yeah, and I think the answer is, is simple. Um, if you want to enter under the law in any sense to receive obedience, or a reward for your obedience, in any sense, then, then you're obligated to fulfill it perfectly. Regardless of whether that's justification or temporary blessings. Is, yeah. there, is there a distinction between rewards and the final reward? Like Paul talks about receiving rewards on this side for just sincere obedience. Like, right. I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of the second commandment. I'm thinking of God saying, I promise to be a God to you and to your children. So God seems to promise, he says, his steadfast love to those who, who love him. So it's not a matter of, this justifies me, but this is, you've made yourself my God, and you've told me to bring my children up in love and fear of you, and you promise to be faithful to them if I continue to do that, if I publicly keep the covenant which I vow to do. Is that fair? Um, I don't, I mean, he'd probably say something along those lines. I just think it's wrong. Um, in other words, so, so the, 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 the Mosaic law, first of all, we're not under for obedience in any and reward in any sense, period. Um, and, and I'll get back to that in just a minute. Um, but you, you would have to bring this, this biblical defense between these two kinds of rewards that, that we can earn these kinds of rewards, but not these kind. And, and what the Mosaic Law says is when you want to be rewarded for obedience, you've got to do it all. Not part of it. Not, not a good effort. So that means not one angry outburst. That means not one lustful thought for dad. Or one insubmissive act for mom. Or one selfish husband, uh, um, impulse. Right? Uh, and, and the answer is... Uh, no, God doesn't promise to reward good faith obedience with, with Christian kids. Um, our, our confession says that the Mosaic Covenant is beneficial to us 
once we've been delivered from it as a covenant of works to see what obedience of gratitude looks like. And, and, and Galatians says to place ourselves back under it is to enter into slavery. Um, parents should expect their children to believe not because they are obedient, but because God is gracious. And he often, not always, but often works within a family. Um, in other words, we obey to honor God in gratitude, not with an expectation. Um, when we lay down our obedience on the altar, we say, I haven't done this so as to put you in my debt. I do this because I am in your debt. And so what I see absent is, is any acknowledgement that you can do everything well that your child might still walk away. And you could do everything poorly and your child might believe. Because ultimately God is the one who has to cause the growth. I might plant, someone might water, but unless the Lord calls. John. Isn't that the point? picture in Revelation when he says no one's found in heaven to unlock the Lamb's book of life yeah yeah because and, and this is what our, our, our catechism and our, our, our confessions say what the moral what the mosaic law shows us is how dependent we are on Christ to obey for us yeah yeah Charlie is, is there could you remind me and Rose the third use of the law Yeah, so the third use of the law is uh, the regenerate, those who are saved, having been delivered from it as a covenant of works, are thereby shown, and and, and pardon for the the lack of exact wording, Uh, actually I can look it up. Um, It's actually in the chapter. Oh, do I have... um, Chapter 19, and then specifically Larger Catechism 97. Yeah. What special use of the, of, is there of the moral law to the regenerate? This is the third use. Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so as thereby neither to be justified nor condemned, yet is a special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling, right, and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same that is their thankfulness in greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule for their obedience. So the third use is, uh, having been delivered from it, so as a covenant of works, do this and be rewarded, uh, it shows us how much we are bound to Christ for his obedience in our place, and then in response to that, to obey ourselves. Right, so in thank, it says in thankfulness that we grow in greater conformity yes. to, yeah. to the law. Yeah. So Ab- it, is, it is, we are delivered from it in a declarative, it doesn't justify us because Christ mm-hmm. fulfilled it, but we are still under obligation. Absolutely. And I think, is that what, that's kind of what it seems like that Wilson is talking about. As parents... You have an obligation to obey the God, to obey God, to bring your children up in the fear and admonition, and and there is a natural means of God being the covenantal father to His families and children. Absolutely. Yeah. What I what I disagree with is the promise. If you do this, this will happen. That's it. 
I, I totally agree on everything except that. That this is... We, I don't, we don't say, oh, I've been delivered from the law. Go live as, you know, <laughs> licentious. <laughs> you know, that's not it at all. Of course I want to do all these things. It's just that when you say, and God promises that if you do, your kids will believe you've crossed the line. That's all. Um, that's a burden no parent can nor should bear. The parable of the prodigal son is not about the father's failures to keep the covenant. In fact, the father is, is lauded for his patience and his love. That's not the point. Is if, the, if the father had just done a better job, the prodigal would never would have left. That's not it at all. Um, some of the most godly parents I know have ever known have, have watched their children walk away. Some parents who parent identically, one child believes and one doesn't. Um, some of the worst parents I've ever known have some kids with the deepest faith. The simple reality is we plant, we water, but God has to cause the growth. I'm not going to tell you, don't worry, don't read the scripture through your kids, don't pray, don't do that, all this is good, what's going to happen is going to happen. No, of course not. But if your child ever walks away, I'm not going to say, what did you do wrong? Yeah, Katie. I absolutely agree that parents aren't responsible for the salvation of their children. Um, I struggle with, like, to understand what scripture, like, um, what scriptures mean when they say, train up your child the way they should go, and when they're old, they want to depart from it, because that sounds like a promise. Yeah, and I, I think I think you have to look at that under the covenantal reality. Um, are, what do you mean by that? What so the Proverbs are written under the Mosaic Covenant, right? And and there's a lot going on there, right? And this is what Pastor Isaac's been doing a great job at, at helping us understand. Uh, I think, how many weeks did he spend on the Mosaic Covenant? Like, a lot. A lot. Okay. <laughs> and I'm grateful for that, because I, I think he did a great job with that. But so, so our, our larger catechism, questions uh, 93 through 98, have great treatment of how do we handle this, right? Um, how do we, and, and, it, it, and it's like, okay, so if, if we can't keep it, is it of any use? And it's like, yeah, it's of great use. It, it, it teaches non Christians um, what God requires so as to humble them and draw them into repentance. It shows us what Christ has done for us so that we might place our hope in him. And then having been delivered from it as a covenant of works, it shows us what obedience we do in gratitude, not expecting the reward, right? And so, um, and we have to understand that with promises like raise up your child in the way they should go, right? If I could do that perfectly, right, well, then that might be the reality, but, that, but I have to learn from the law under which that, that proverb is written. I can't do that perfectly. I want to do it well, but, but never at the end of the day say, because I did as well as I could, right, that, um, that my child will believe, or, or if my child doesn't, that somehow it's because if I had just done a little bit better, that's it. So the Mosaic Law is like a caveat to, to scriptures like that that look like promises. Right. So 
um, the, the, the mosaic law works a lot like a hamster. Um, what do I mean by that? Child's five years old says, I want a dog. You say, okay, that's a big responsibility, right? Um, and are you ready for that? Oh, yes, I'm ready for that. Okay, well, let's start with a hamster. Knowing full well, right, that unless you step in and help your child, that in a week's time, what's going to happen? Most likely. The hamster will probably be dead, right? And then you say, well, what if that had been a dog, right? Uh, so the Lord comes into the Mosaic Covenant and says, okay, you think you can earn eternal life through your obedience. Let's try keeping the land through it and see how you do. Well, inevitably, Israel fails. They get kicked out of the land. And then the question is, well, what if that had been your eternity? Do you really want to try that? Or do you want to rest upon me? Well, I want to rest upon you. Good call. So, um, caveat, I would probably not choose that language. What I'd say is, it comes in from a different angle to teach us an important lesson. Now, having been delivered from that, it, it... it still shows me what's good and pleasing and right. All these things are good, right? The, the law is not contrary uh, to, to what we do as, as Christians saved by grace through faith. But it just doesn't, uh, we don't do it for reward. Real quick, one question, then I, I do want to get on to it one point before we... Okay. Um, I just want to say that tying that kind of burden around parents, it, it, it's unhelpful, it's unbiblical, and it's unkind. Um, Parents are already aware of their frailties, and they spend enough time beating themselves up for their failures. We don't need to add to that. It's a shame you weren't a little bit better. Your your kids might be going to heaven. Uh, Sean, is it a quick? It's quick. Okay. My understanding of Proverbs 22 6 is not, it's a promise. The parents are to start the child off, to give them direction, to give them, put them on the path or the way, I think Mm -hmm. Peter says. Um, And then it's the child's obligation to adhere to Yeah, there's so much that goes involved, right? Um, What we do. The Lord who elects and the, call, the will of our child. And, and we have responsibility over some of that, but not all of it. And we need to seek to be as faithful as we can with the parts we can, but not think that that's the only piece of the puzzle. Matthew, is a quick... Uh, somebody, I thought I saw a hand over here. Okay. Maybe just mind playing tricks on me. Okay, but I think there's a kind of appeal to... There's an appeal to this kind of thinking. Um... And if I just give my kids the right education, if I just do my job as a parent, um, if, 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 then my child will follow the Lord, then my marriage will, will, will be good. And I get the appeal because, I'll be honest, there is nothing more important to me than the Lord. And so there's nothing I desire more for my children than that they love the Lord. Um... I want a strong marriage that honors the Lord. Um, And anything that offers a way to make that happen is going to be very attractive. 
But we need to guard against making promises the Bible doesn't. And we need to guard against placing ourselves under those who would make those promises because they can do more harm than good in the long run. So where do we get, count, where do we get good counsel on, on marriage and parenting? Well, obviously, the scriptures is where we start. They are our firm foundation. And the Bible addresses husbands, the Bible addresses wives, it addresses parents, and it addresses children. But what's interesting is that most of what it has to say... Regardless of which one you are, or which ones, is that, is that most of what it has to say is about what it means to lay down your life, your wants, your desires, your ways, to take up your cross, to, to humble yourself, to serve, to walk humbly with your God. Uh, in other words, if you want to be a better dad, you want to be a better mom, you want to be a better husband, a better wife... then learn what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Um, Beyond this, we also need to remember where the scriptures drive us to seek help. It's not experts or or books or um, lectures. It's it's flesh and blood people in our church. Uh, Titus 2, I'm going to go a little bit long, but please bear with me because I'm just about there. Titus 2 tells older people in the church to pour into the younger people and the younger people to look to the older. And I know there are going to be some objections uh, that are bound to come up, so let me briefly try to address um, the three big ones that, that came to my mind. I think objection one would be this. The younger people might say something like, the old people, older people aren't pursuing them, aren't available, aren't willing to share. Okay, well, those who are older, and maybe I should say we who are older, uh, I guess it depends on who you ask, we do need to be pursuing the younger. God commands it. And I think sometimes there's a fear. What do I have to teach? Right? What would I say? You don't have to teach. You need to open your life and spend time. Don't prepare a lesson. Invite someone younger to spend the day with you and let God do the rest. Share your regrets. Share what you're grateful for. Encourage, pray, challenge. Now, while there's times for clear instructions on what it means to be a man, to be a woman, and to be a parent, um, there are, and I I don't want to say that there aren't, but but marriage and parenting are more often caught than taught. Don't let your fears keep you from opening your life to those who are younger. We've got to to do a better job at cross-generational hanging out. Uh, Older people might have objection number two. Well, the younger people aren't asking for help. Well, that might be true. According to the Bible, younger people should be seeking counsel from those who are older. Uh, They should reach out. They should ask. They should listen. Um, and the best times to do this, younger people, aren't when you're rest, uh, uh, aren't just like this general like it, uh, abstract times. It's when you're wrestling with a real issue, struggle, or problem. Pick up the phone, uh, invite someone over, invite yourself over to someone's house, and and work through it together. Hash it out, pound it out. Look what the process of thinking through these things looks like. 
Um, I still want to encourage older people not to wait to be asked, though. Invite younger people into your life, into your home, and you don't have to say, hey, I want to mentor you. It doesn't have to be official. Just open your home. Open your heart. Open your life to the younger people in the church. Um, and let God do the rest. Now, let me, let me address the third objection that I can see. Younger people might look at those who are older and say, um, they're a mess. What do they have to offer me? And my response is a simple, so? Everyone's a mess. We're all sinners. None of us is perfect. And you really need to be aware of anyone who, who looks like they are because they're hiding something. Uh, but people have always been messy sinners. And God knew that when he wrote Titus 2. When he gave us instructions to seek the older and, and for the older to pour into the younger. In other words, God knows that we're a mess and yet he still says that this is the way to do it. Because that's how God does things. He uses really imperfect things to do amazing things. Then he says, I get the credit. A real person is better than a book. It's better than a podcast. Better than a lecture. Because a real person can ask you questions. When I meet with people, they almost always have a diagnosis for what's going on in their lives. Something they think that they need. Uh, Husbands usually think their wives need to submit better. Wives usually think their husbands are failing to lead. Parents think their children are failing to obey. And children think that their parents are unreasonable. And the solution is always fix the other person. And usually, they're missing something that can only come through a two-way conversation. It's critical. It's essential. We need more dialogue in our lives and less monologue. We need conversation partners. People who can ask questions and point things out like hidden pride. People who can reflect on their own experiences, whether good or bad. Uh, There have been men in my life who have made a huge impact. Some of them um, are are with Jesus now. And they're even better than when I knew them. But what I remember about them often weren't the words they spoke. It's how they served their wives. Um, Watching it remember watching my, my dad's uncle and his wife. Um, it's beautiful. And I just remember thinking, I want that. I had one of my professors over in seminary, and he was quite old at the time, for dinner. And his wife was free. I just watching him the whole evening taking care of her. We, we saw it with Klaus and Wilma. It's like, man... If I can be half the man he is, uh, they could pierce me with a stare, but it was always in love. Sometimes they talked about what it meant to be a man, but more often, they just did it, and I got to watch. Um, As I've thought about them for the past few weeks, getting ready for today, I've realized the other thing that I remember from them, and it's their prayers. When they prayed, it was never like they felt obligation. It was like they knew God and they knew their need. Uh, and their prayers were prayers of humble surrender. Uh, 
neediness, dependence, longing, begging for God's mercy every day. Every meal. What a beautiful model of what it means to be a man. Um, That's not to say there aren't men in our midst whom I would admire and seek for counsel. Um, There are men in this room who have got texts from me. When are you available to talk? I need some help. Um, John Buma, Steve Etheridge, Dave Stodema, others. Um, No one's ever told me to go away. They don't have time for me. Uh, And their counsel has always been amazing. Uh, There are others in our midst, and there are many godly women as well. Uh, Gary, if I can pick on Laurel Lynn for a minute. Laurel Lynn didn't talk much, but man, did she have a lot to say. And I don't know a woman who knew her who didn't learn from her. Man, and there's others. And my hope is that others would tap into these resources as well. Um, I've gone over, and I thank you for your patience, not just today, but through the series. And I ask that you forgive me when I've failed to communicate well and when I've become overly emotional. Uh, My hope for all of you is for healthy homes, uh, humble parents, godly kids, sacrifice, service. My prayer is that Together we would be known for those who take up our crosses and serve each other. And I pray that God would be pleased to accomplish all of these things in our midst. That's my prayer. So thank you for your patience. Let me pray. Our merciful God, we are wholly dependent upon you. Unless you build the house, we labor in vain. We can water, we can plant, but you must cause the growth. And so we surrender our lives, our marriages, our children to you. We ask that you would watch over them and that through and in the midst of and despite our imperfect works, you would do something beautiful. May the older and the younger in this church do a better job at talking, sharing, listening, and encouraging each other. May we take your truths and learn to wrestle and make wise calls. Father, we ask these things through Christ our Savior. Amen.